we found the other piano. Esther chapter 5. Esther chapter 5. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles so that you can follow along with us as we look into God's Word. Imagine the year is 2000 and there's an art teacher in a local high school who becomes violently ill, has to miss class unexpectedly. And suppose uh, Thomas Kincaid or Bob Ross Uh, takes the place of this art teacher for that day. And when she comes back after being sick, she sees this brilliant painting on the canvas in her room in the front of the class. And, And, you know, not one of the kids said who the painting was from. Not one of them talked about uh, the teacher that was there, didn't give a name. But because the art teacher was schooled in art, she knew what various art pieces looked like. She knew that it was Thomas Kincaid that took over her class, or she knew that it was Bob Ross that was there for the day. And that illustration, I think, helps paint the picture for what's going on in the book of Esther. We're nearly halfway through the book, and still no mention of God. No mention of prayer. No mention of holiness. No mention of God's word, no mention of sacrifice. The story seems to be all about these characters, Xerxes and and Haman and Mordecai and Esther. No mention of God. But we, like that art teacher, know who God is and we know God when we see Him. And so we can see His fingerprints all over this story, can't we? That God is in control of everything that's taking place in this story. And so He doesn't have to be mentioned. No one has to say His name in this book. And it provides a powerful picture for us of how God works in our day as well. That many times in life we see events that take place and we don't hear God's name mentioned. But we know His hands are all over it. When someone is restored to health, probably a better example is when someone changes from following idols, from following their own sin, from being a servant of Satan to being a child of God. When we see that happen, we know that that's of God. As the one commentator writes, God is most omnipotently present when He is most conspicuously absent. Esther chapter 5 This morning, we'll read the entire chapter, beginning in verse 1, Esther chapter 5. This is the Word of God. Now it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms. And the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight. And the king extended to Esther the golden scepter which was in his hand. So Esther came near and touched the top of his scepter. And then the king said to her, What is troubling you, Queen Esther? And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be given to you. Esther said, If it pleases the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly that we may do as Esther desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet which Esther had prepared. 
And as they drank their wine at the banquet, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? For it shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be given. It shall be done. And so Esther replied, My petition and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and do what I request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king says. Then Haman went out that day glad and pleased of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. Haman controlled himself, however, went to his house and sent for his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches and the number of his sons and every instance where the king had magnified him and how he had promoted him above the princes and servants of the king. Haman also said, Even Esther the queen, let no one but me come with the king to the banquet which she had prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her with the king. Yet all of this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then Zeresh's wife and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows fifty cubits high made, and in the morning ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. And the advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. We have two huge subplots within the main plot of the story. The main plot is really coming to, uh, to culmination here in the next chapter. But these two huge subplots really provide the setting for the main plot. And we'll see um, that, that both of these subplots are being controlled by the Almighty God. Both of these subplots, without His name being written all over it, are being controlled by the, the Almighty God. The first subplot is that Esther has been sent by Mordecai to the king in order to protect the Jews. The second subplot is that Haman wants to destroy Mordecai before this edict goes into place or before this edict is carried out. Remember, the Jews were supposed to be killed in a few months from now, from then, and Haman can't wait for Mordecai to die then. He wants him to die now. And so that's why he is filled with such grief. So you have two major events that are going on here, and they're really opposing events, right? Esther wants to see herself and the Jews protected, and Mordecai wants to kill, or, or I'm sorry, Haman wants to kill Mordecai prematurely. And they're both going to go before the king, or try to, and only one of them is going to get what they want. So let's look at this first subplot. Esther attempts to protect the Jews and expose Haman in verses 1 through 8. Esther had called on all the Jews, remember in chapter 4, all the Jews in Susa, to fast for three days. And she said that she and her maidens would do the same. Well, it was the final day of this fasting, and it was time for her to talk to the king. And so she puts on her royal robes. And I think that she does this wisely to highlight her identity before the king, to show him who she is, that she's not just some commoner coming before him, but she is his queen. And then she does something very risky. Look at verse 1. The end of the verse says, She stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms, and the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposing 
uh, opposite the entrance to the palace. You'll say, that doesn't sound very risky at all. But turn back to chapter 4, verse 11, and you'll see that this is worthy of death. If you came to that inner room without being invited, if you came as an uninvited guest, whether you're the queen or not, you could have been killed for such a thing, which is why she was not wanting to do it. Verse 11, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king to the, notice, inner court, who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death. Unless, here's the exception to the law, the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. I haven't been in the inner court, Mordecai. So I don't have the pull that you think I do. I can't go before him. I have not been invited. And if I go to that inner court uninvited, he has but one law to kill me. Unless I've been, uh, unless he holds out the golden scepter, so it's really risky for me to do so. And uh, so she does it. Chapter five, verse one. And the tension here must be unbearable because is he going to call for the executioners? Is he go- going to call for the law to be carried out in full measure on his queen, or is he going to show her favor by extending the golden scepter? And we see uh, that that he notices her in verse 2. In the middle of the verse says, She obtained favor in his sight, and the king extended to Esther the golden scepter which was in his hand. He saw her. He showed her favor. He extended the golden scepter. Now, this may seem like something very uh, minor. You know, in our day, husbands, your wives don't have to come into an inner court and, and be invited before they can have uh, a conversation with you. But in their culture, this was completely normal for this to take place, especially within a royal household. And so the fact that he would show her favor is simply amazing because we've seen how fickle this man is. We see how, how he rises and falls based on the circumstances. And for him to say, you know what, Esther, I know you've done me some favors in the past, but you're dead. You can't defy me in this way. You can't disgrace me by coming into my presence without being asked. Even though that's a very possible response he could have had, we should not be surprised by how he does respond. Do you remember Abraham in Genesis chapter 20? when he had told Sarah to lie and tell people that she was his sister? Because surely, he says, there is no fear of God in this place. That is, these pagans, they don't fear God at all. And so, because they don't, they don't care about human life. They don't care about morality. And they're going to destroy my wife. They're going to take... the they're going to take her and they're going to... Uh, actually, he was more concerned about his own skin. They're going to kill me so that they can have her. And in making that statement, Abraham was suggesting that he was the only one that was fearing God, and they weren't. You know, there's no fear of God in this place. When we look at the story, we say, well, it looks like there's no fear of God in you, Abraham, right now by making that choice. He's saying, none of you take God's Word seriously. And so... Because of that, 
Sarah, you need to tell people that you're my sister. And you know who takes God's word seriously in that story? Do you remember what God does there? He comes to the king in a dream, the pagan king. And do you know who respects God's word there? It's the pagan king. He showed more reverence for God's word than Abraham did. And so we should not be surprised when God moves the hearts of even wicked people to do what He wants, like He does here in Esther. How about Jonah? Remember when he was on a boat to Tarshish? And the pagans asked who he was? And he told them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God, the Maker of the heaven and the earth and the sea, the sea upon which is so tumultuous right now. I, I'm, the, I'm the one who serves that God who's the maker of those things, who controls those things. And yet, who's more concerned about human life? Jonah or the pagans on the boat? Jonah, what does he want to see happen in Nineveh? Is he concerned about human life there? No, he's like, God's judgment needs to come down on them. They're wicked people and they need to be destroyed. He doesn't want to give them a second chance. He doesn't want to show mercy to human life. And yet... Here are these pagans on a boat who are told by Jonah himself, throw me overboard and this storm will stop. And what do they do? Throw him overboard immediately? No. They plead with him. And then they cast lots to see if this is of God. They have a boatload of pagans who are doing everything that they can to try to spare Jonah's life. And so we should not be surprised when God has influence even over ungodly people even if they are a ruler of a land. That's how God works. God can work through any person. God can accomplish what He wants through any person, godly or otherwise. And so what we see here in chapter 5, verse 2, is a providential act of God. This has God's fingerprints all over it. Even though Esther may have thought, you know, it was because I wore the royal robes, because of the time of the day that I chose strategically, I chose the right time of day, and so on. It wasn't because of her charm or her cunning that he accepted her in this case, but rather it's because of God's providence. God has influence over every single creature on this universe. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, I've reminded you about this, but I will not stop reminding you that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it whatever way he wishes, like a channel of water. He can turn it however he wants. No matter if he's a godly king like David or if he's an ungodly king like Saul or Pharaoh. So Esther comes before him. And the first thing that he asks of her is, what is your request? He's saying, you know, You have risked your life, Esther. You must have something very important on your mind. You have something of great crisis if you're going to come and risk your life to talk to me. So what is your request? I know it's serious, and so I'm going to give you up to half my kingdom. This is the first of three times that the king asks Esther what she wants. And he offers her here, and at the end of the chapter, or in the middle of the chapter, up to half of his kingdom. Now, this could be a genuine offer. You know, you can have, uh, as long as I have the majority, I'm still the ruler. You can have all these resources and, and uh, ruling ability that you want. But I think it's probably 
an idiom or an embellishment that he's making there? Because if he did this, this two times and the person accepted his request, he would only own a quarter of what he had, right? A half of a half. If he said, here, Esther, you can have up to half my kingdom, and she's like, okay, I'll take it. Then he only has a half of what he had before. And then if he does that again to say, Haman, you can have up to half my kingdom, then he'd only have a quarter. And so I don't think this is a literal, uh, a little literal offer similar to what Herod did to his stepdaughter. Remember, in the middle of this party, you can have up to half my kingdom. Well, he's not really offering her half of the kingdom. He's just saying, what do you want? I'll give you anything in the whole world. That sort of idea. Well, Esther makes her request in verse 4. And this seems a little strange. We would expect Esther, she has her say now before the king. And so you would expect her to fall on her knees and say, please save the Jews. Haman, this wicked man, has, has made this uh, law against them and, and has, has purposed to destroy them. And so please save them, king. Do whatever you can. I am a Jew. And I haven't told you that. I'm sorry, but please save them. Instead, what does she do? She appeals to something that he loves very much. Look at verse 4. Esther said, If it pleases the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Come to a banquet. You know, let's talk about it then. Perhaps it was to calm him down a little bit, to um, so put him in a better mood. Uh, it could be so, and she probably brought Haman along so that he would be set up for a huge fall. Maybe he wouldn't have time to defend himself. He would simply just have to respond, right? When he was, when this charge was laid against him, it could be that she was thinking through all those things. Maybe she was just too afraid to say anything to the king. It's not clear from the text, but she does offer this banquet. And in verse five, they go to the banquet. And as they're drinking wine, verse six says, "The king said to Esther, What is your petition? For it shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom, it shall be done." Okay, so Esther, I know this is not what you wanted. You did not risk your life when you were in the inner court in order to have a banquet with me. So what do you really want? Here's your opportunity to tell me. And how does she respond? Please save the Jews. No. You know what? Why don't we have another banquet tomorrow? I'll prepare it. The two, the three of us can go again, and then we'll talk. And then... In this one, she says, actually, well, I'll tell you my petition and my request. Look at verse uh, 8. At the end of the verse, it says, And tomorrow I will do as the king says. Hey, I'm not here to have banquets with you. You know that. You can see through that, uh, King Xerxes. So I do have a legitimate request, but tomorrow is going to be when I actually ask, the, ask the, the, this thing of you. Now, why did Esther delay to tell the king what she really wanted? Was she scared, perhaps? Maybe she was concerned about springing this huge request on him too soon. Maybe she was trying to intensify his curiosity, you know, like kids at Christmas time. When they, when they know they're getting presents, they're excited. But when they see the actual present, when they feel it, they shake it, they, the... the, the their, their curiosity is intensified. Maybe that's what she was doing. 
And then at that point, you know, it doesn't matter what it, she asks, he'll respond in favor. Maybe she was trying to get him into a drunken state so that he would be ha- have a loss of inhibitions, and maybe that would work in, his, in her favor. We don't know why she delayed. There's no clue of it in the text, but but we do know that God used this delay to accomplish some important parts to this story. Some important events important events took place in this delay. If she would have made that request initially, we would have missed out on two important things that take place. One, or three, excuse me. One, we'll see this here at the end of this chapter. Haman is so hateful towards Mordecai that he builds a set of gallows or agrees to build a set of gallows for Mordecai. Okay, so that wouldn't have happened if she would have brought out this request. Two, in chapter 6, the king remembers, remember he couldn't sleep, so he, he has the chronicles read to him, and he remembers that Mordecai had, had saved his life. Okay, so that's the second thing, is the king remembers this and, and wants to show him favor. He recognizes that Mordecai hasn't been rewarded. And then three, the third event that God accomplishes in the time of the delay is that Haman is forced to parade Mordecai around the city. All three of those things could not have happened if Esther would have made her request initially. Obviously, she didn't know all those things were going to take place. And so what we know is that God was using this delay to accomplish what He wanted. So Esther's request is to save the Jews. Mordecai's request here comes up, the second subplot comes up in verses 9-14. through 14, And his request that he wants to go before the king and ask is that kill Mordecai prematurely. Remember, Mordecai already had a sentence of death along with the rest of the Jews. Haman's anger is seen in verses 9-13. through 13. Uh, First, he is glad and pleased in his heart, verse 9 says. He was congratulating himself for such a high position, right? He gets to go to this VIP banquet, just him and the king and, and Esther. I mean, this is special. But as soon as you see him in a joyful or a happy state, you also see him go to the depths of despair when he sees Mordecai here in verse 9. The second part of the verse says, But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and there, and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger. As quickly as his joy came for being a part of this VIP banquet, it, it, it escapes him because he's so hateful towards Mordecai. Mordecai didn't stand up or tremble. Now this is different from what Mordecai did before. In chapter 3, verses 2-5, through five, Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. Here he's sitting on the chair reading the newspaper with his hands in his pockets, whistling a tune or something. And when Haman comes by, he doesn't even stand up or tremble in his presence. This is a problem to Haman because Haman believes that everybody ought to honor him. So Haman is filled with anger, although the text tells us that he did not show it immediately. Look at verse 10. He controlled himself, however, and he went to his house. He didn't show it publicly. Instead, he went home and talked to his wife and his friends. And while at home, he talked about three things that he valued very highly. Did you see those three things in verses 11 and 12? First, the glory of his riches, his wealth. First, his wealth. I have all these great riches, he tells them. Then, I have these sons, his family, and the number of his sons. Sons were something that were highly regarded in those days. 
It meant that a man was of great had great honor to have that many sons, and we find out later that he has ten sons. And the third thing that he uh, is proud of first his wealth, then his family, then his recognition. Right? The king had promoted him above the princes and the servants of the king, the end of verse 11 says. And then Esther invited him to the special banquet. So, see, I have great recognition. I have wealth. I have family. And I have great honor. I am recognized before people. But, he says all those things, not, to, not just to boast in those things on their own, but to say that those things don't matter to me, verse 13, as long as that Wicked Jew Mordecai, he doesn't say wicked, I implied, I uh, inserted that, but that evil, mean Mordecai will not bow down to me. Those things don't matter. All the wealth, all the family, all the recognition, that doesn't matter to me. Because my recognition, it's great. Yeah, the king recognizes me. He, he parades me around the city and I get recognized. But my recognition is not universal. And that bothered him. There was one person who despised him. And you can just hear the hatred in his voice in verse 13. Yet all of this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai the Jew, or literally that Mordecai that Jew sitting at the king's gate. That Mordecai. As long as he does that, I don't care about those other things. I want everybody who knows me to honor me. And in fact, that's the way it is. In all of my life, the king knows me and he honors me. He's exalted me to a high place. The queen honors me. She brings me to this banquet. When I walk around the city gate, people tremble at my presence. They bow. They stand up in honor of me. So if I can just get rid of this one man, this Mordecai, and everyone that I know will love me and honor me like I love and honor myself. And by the way, you know the end of the story that all those things that he valued are taken away from him. And Mordecai is not destroyed. The wealth would go to Esther, chapter 8, verse 7. His sons would be killed, chapter 9, verse 13. And the recognition that he had, the positive recognition that he had, went away to be replaced by a negative recognition because he was actually impaled on that gallows that he had set up for Mordecai, 75 feet in the air. And so as he commiserates about his situation that not everybody honors me like I want to be honored, his advisors, the text tells us his wife and his friends, give him this, this, uh, this advice in verse 14. Then Zeresh's wife, wife and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows, fifty cubits high, made. And in the morning ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it, and then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. Now this is a strange thing to, to advise Haman to do. Because we know in chapter 2, verse 23, that there are already a set of gallows built in Susa. Remember the two would-be assassins? They were going to kill the king. Mordecai found out about it, and what happened to them? They were hanged on the gallows in Susa. But Haman didn't want Mordecai just to die. He wanted to make a public spectacle of him. And so a much 
higher gallows would be necessary. And this is what his family offers as a solution. It says in the text that this gallows should be 50 cubits high. A cubit is about 18 to 20 inches. The way that they would determine that is they would have some rulers that would basically measure it out. But basically it's from your elbow to the top of your middle fingers is how they measured out a cubit. So 50 of those would be about 75 feet high. Now she could be speaking hyperbolically, you know, just throwing out a number. You know, build, build a set of gallows like, I don't know, 75 feet high in the air. You know, maybe it's similar to what Xerxes is doing. You know, up to half my kingdom, but maybe embellishing a little bit. But more likely, they were suggesting, and Haman would actually build, have built, a gallows that was actually 50 cubits high, 75 feet high. Now, that would be quite a structure to be able to support such a thing at such a high, uh, such a height. But it was probably something that was put on top of the hill so that the the peak of it would be at 75 feet, either the top of a hill or the top of a city gate or something, um, so that the peak of it would be at 75 feet. And the point of it is not as a means of execution, but as a means of displaying the dead body. This is how the, the, um, the gallows would be used in those days. It would be to show the dead body of a person who was, was in great disgrace in the nation. And, and, and all people would be able to see, right? In Susa, they would look up to this, this tower, this huge uh, structure with Mordecai hanging there impaled on this pole. That's what it was. It was a pole with a sharp point on it. Not like the gallows we make when we're playing the game Hangman, right? That's not the type of gallows they had back then. It was it was just a pole, and they would impale them on it after the body was already killed. And sometimes a person would be killed on the pole, uh, but most likely it was, or most often it was our, the person was already dead. They were hanging there post-mortem. Well, in the morning, they say, after you have this gallows built, then go ask the king if he will allow you to do this, if he will, he will allow you to put Mordecai on there. But notice the language there. Have a gallows, 50 cubits built, and in the morning, ask the king. Literally, from the Hebrew, it is, say to the king. Or as the English Standard Version puts it, tell the king. This is not, hey, see if you can do this to the king, but kind of like you did with the, uh, with the law that you put in place, tell him. You have enough influence over the king. You don't have to wait in the inner court to come into his presence. You're one of his trusted advisors. You go and you tell him to have Mordecai put on those gallows. So we're going to handle all this. Haman, don't let it bother you. Go to the banquet and enjoy yourself because you are a man of great honor. So Haman takes their advice, but what Haman didn't know was that he was the one that was going to be hanging there in 24 hours. This conflict in the story is leading to the climax. By the end of chapter 5, if we didn't know the rest of the story, we would think that Haman is rising to greater power and that Esther's uh, request is going to be denied. But we do know the end of the story. And because the story is leading this way, we would expect Mordecai to die, to at least be on the brink of death, 
and at a place where Esther is unable to be saved or to help save the Jews. I mean, perhaps Mordecai even sees the gallows being built and knows that they are for him. But at this point, there's something very important that the king doesn't know about, and that is he doesn't remember that Mordecai had not been rewarded for the previous uh, exposing the plot of his assassination. And so really the life of Mordecai is dependent on the king's decision. Will he listen to Esther and spare all the Jews, including Mordecai, or will he listen to Haman, vile Haman, cunning Haman, and kill Mordecai prematurely? These two subplots are going to converge and and really lead to the main plot in chapters 6 and 7. I just want to give you one word of application from the life of Haman. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Sometimes when we have negative examples placed before us, we can learn... Uh, even more than positive examples, occasionally this this is the case. I think this is what's going on here. We don't have any positive examples, I've argued, in the book of Esther. Not Mordecai, not Esther. But we do have some ne- negative examples and we can see how God uh, how God uses them. But we can also see what not to do. Like in extreme cases like Haman, what not to do. What I would say to you with regard to Haman is that we are susceptible to the same sin that plagued him, and that is this, self-obsession. Self-obsession. Paul says it like this, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Beware of self-obsession, even as a believer. Because self-obsession will destroy you. Those who are obsessed with their self, with themselves are very unstable emotionally. Haman's emotions are all over the place based on how people view him, how they're recognizing him, how they're honoring him. When they are, he's happy. When they're not, he's ready to give up on life. None of those things matter. My sons don't matter. My wealth doesn't matter. My recognition from everybody else in this place doesn't matter unless this one person recognizes me too. He goes from an emotional high, the text calls it joyful, but when Mordecai fails to show him respect, he is depressed. Well, how do we avoid the emotional roller coaster that rises and falls on the approval of others? How do we avoid the, the sin of Haman? Because if you allow the approval to, of, of other people to drive you, then you will be destroyed. You will be distraught when you get disapproval from them. How do we avoid that emotional roller coaster that rises and falls on the approval of others or on the, on, rises and falls on our circumstances? When they're high, we're high. When they're low, we're really low. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, I think, give us uh, direction 
in this regard. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. When we were in South America, um, Archie Perez would go around and visit several of the people from his church, and many of them were in difficult situations, either elderly and and disabled, or or, uh, the younger lady that we showed you, uh, Yolanda, who had a difficult life. And he read to them Psalm 121. I look to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of the heaven and the earth. And he said to them, you know, pigs, pigs are always looking down, aren't they? They always got their head down. But as humans, we ought to have our heads up. Now, lift up our eyes to the hills. Look up to God. That's where our help comes from. This is what Paul is saying here in Colossians chapter 3. If we focus on the circumstances, if we focus on the approval of others, we're going to rise and fall on whether those things are good or bad at that time. But if our focus is on God, who is unmovable, and we avoid that emotional roller coaster, It's all about perspective, isn't it? And this speaks to the main point of our passage, that God is in control of all events in this story and in every story. So when we look to Him, our circumstances are constantly changing, the approval of others constantly going up and down. But that doesn't matter, because that's not our main focus. That's not our main goal in life. Like for Haman, it was to get everybody to approve of him, everybody to honor him, everybody to recognize him. But our goal in life is to get is to to, to be honoring to God, to walk worthy of our calling, and so we look up to Him. Now, I'm not suggesting that we turn into emotionless robots, right? So when somebody dies, we can't shed a tear for that. When we are genuinely hurt by the sin of someone else, we can't cry for that. I'm sorry. Okay, because my eyes are on God. And yeah, it should be during those times. But, you know, that doesn't mean that we never get angry over sin like Jesus did. That means, that doesn't mean, and by the way, that's a godly anger. That doesn't mean that we never cry like Jesus did at the loss of Lazarus. That doesn't mean that we never have expressions of great joy. Like David did at the return of the ark. That doesn't mean that we don't don't have times of great grief like David did because of his sin or because of Absalom or because of his son that had died. Okay, so that's not what I'm saying, to become emotionless. But what I am saying is when you are obsessed with yourself, it's not enough to have lots of good gifts from God, like great family prosperity, a good job. It's not enough when you're obsessed with yourself because you have to have a better family than the other person. You have to have a better job, more money, richer, more powerful. You say, well, I don't have any of those problems. I don't lust for power or money or recognition. And perhaps that's true. But let me give you a little litmus test for, for whether or not you do. Okay, This, this will give you a, a window into your heart. How do you, act, 
interact with rich people compared to poor people. Okay, if, if your eyes are fixed on God and you're more concerned about God's ways, then you will treat all those people the same. No matter where they are, you will treat them the same. How do you interact with powerful people compared to weak people? Okay, James dealt with this in his letter, right? You have people coming into your church and you're showing them favoritism because they, they're, they're wearing better clothes. They, they, they look like they're wealthy. And then you're, all these other people, they have to sit in the worst spots. Did you ever notice that Jesus never fawned over rich or powerful people? You will debilitate yourself spiritually if you are obsessed with yourself and with other people's view of you. Because in your self-obsession, in my self-obsession, we believe that we are number one in all of life. That the world revolves around us. And if anybody doesn't, anybody else doesn't see that, then you better look out because I'm coming after you. If you don't see me as number one, like I see myself as number one, that's when I have a problem. And here's the wrong emotional roller coaster that we go on. When they see me as number one, I'm up here. When my circumstances seem to lead, lead me to believe that I am number one, then I'm up here. But when my circumstances are bad, when people's approval of me are bad, then I'm way down here. And that's because my eyes are down like a pig. Just concerned about the things around me. Not concerned about the things of God. In order to avoid self-obsession, we must put things in proper perspective. This is what all of life is about. This is what happened to you when you came to Christ. God changed your perspective for the first time you recognized that you weren't at the center. But here's the problem for us as Christians. We constantly slip back into the place where we think we are at the center. We move God off of the throne in our life. God, I know you want to have first place, but I want first place. And we move Him off the throne. And the only way that we have proper perspective is by aligning our thinking and our desires with God's thinking and God's desires. And you know what God's greatest desire is? In all of His life, from eternity past to eternity future, His greatest desire is to exalt Himself. Now you may be thinking, that is very arrogant on His part. He wants to exalt Himself. But he does this, I hope you understand, because there is nothing greater that he can exalt. There is not one being that is greater than God. For us, it's wrong because there is a greater being than us. It is God. But for God, it's not. The best thing that he can do is to promote his own exaltation. And the best thing that every one of us, as his creatures, can do is exalt his own exaltation. It is to promote his own exaltation. In fact, for God to exalt any other being other than Himself would be idolatrous. And the same is true for us. And so God has every right to promote His own name. Because there is no greater name than God. And Isaiah says that there is none like you. 
There's none like God. And so we exalt Him. We, we become less obsessed with ourselves and more obsessed with God and His work, what He's doing, His thoughts, His desires. And as we align ourselves like that, we're less like Haman and more level-headed like Christ. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for Your grace in our lives. We're thankful for the time when You made it clear to us through Your Word that that we are not the center of our own lives. It was like the astrologers in the past who finally figured it out that the earth was not the center of the solar system, but the sun was. And that happened to us spiritually when we recognized that that we're not the center. Everything doesn't revolve around us. We revolve around You. And Your purposes stand. You are to be exalted above all else. And we bow in shame because we often seek to exalt our own names, to promote our own purposes and desires apart from You. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on You and to align our desires with Your desires so that when we seek to accomplish those desires, they're in keeping with Yours. That we're not opposing You, but we're supporting You. We're doing what You ask of us. And that's the very least we can do through all the mercy that You've shown to us to offer our lives as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable in Your sight. Help us to do that, we pray. Help us not to minimize our responsibility toward holiness and to... uh, self-deprecation in the sense that John the Baptist talked about it, that we must decrease and you must increase. May Jesus Christ be praised in our lives, not just with our lips, not just with our attendance to church on Sunday, although we should do both of those, but with with all of our actions, with how we treat our family at home, with how we treat people at work, with how we think about you throughout the week. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.